0: North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, We'll talk with the people who know the most about north korea
1: this is victor cha senior vice president and korea chair at csis We hosted the sixth rok u.s strategic forum with the korea foundation
2: on
3: november 15th and we would like to share the recordings of the event with you in these bonus episodes of the impossible state podcast
1: all right everybody good good morning to those in washington good evening to those in korea good day to those around the world welcome to session one of this excellent conference it's already underway with a couple of rousing speeches great q a to get uh, us ready for our first expert panel we're a little behind so uh we are going to make up some time by skimming over some of the biographies but don't let the brevity detract from their importance and really impeccable credentials it is an amazing group with that i'm just going to get right into the uh, substance of the panel this panel is about uh, u.s china competition and the alliance to hedge or to choose maybe perhaps the column or the uh, panelists will talk about how that perhaps is a false choice. I don't know. We're going to get into that. But uh, essentially, uh, with secondary states in the international system being confronted with uh, less hedge space and zero sum binary choices in an era of U.S.-China strategic competition, how do U.S. allies assess policy decisions? Under what conditions do they hedge, align with the U.S., or accommodate China? And what is the impact of this competition for broader stability in East Asia? As I mentioned, a fantastic panel to get us rolling here, and I'm gonna, again, breeze through their bios. Here we go, Dr. Evan Maderos, Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Uh, He also served in the White House as the Senior Director under President Obama, long history uh at rand as well and uh received his phd in international relations from the london school of economics next up the honorable randall g schreiber chairman of the board of project 2049 institute and partner at pacific solutions llc former uh, assistant secretary of defense uh, for asia at the pentagon former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, also served as a founding partner of Armitage International, served as an intelligence officer in the United States Navy, uh, attache at U.S. Embassy Beijing, and U.S. uh, Embassy Ulaanbaatar, BA from Williams and a master's degree from Harvard University. Next up, Professor Jun-Hyung Kim, Uh, professor in the International Studies Department at Hangdong University, where he also served as the chancellor of the Korean National Diplomatic Academy, invited to George Mason as a Fulbright visiting scholar, uh, and a whole host of other uh, impressive work on peace, unification, uh, all of the, these issues that the, this panel and this conference will discuss here today. Received his uh, BA from, from Yonsei University uh, and his MA and PhD at GW, George Washington University. Next up, Sang-Yoon Ma, professor of international relations at Catholic University of Korea. He was director general uh, for strategy at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Korea from 16 to 19. Formerly held positions as visiting scholar at Brookings, uh, public policy scholar at Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, intelligence officer in the ROK Air Force. BA and MA, in international relations at Seoul National University. And then as a Swire scholar, continued study of international relations at St. Anthony's College, Oxford University, where he received his PhD. D degree. All right, last but certainly not not least, Sun Inju, professor, Department of Political Science and International Relations at Seoul National University, visiting professor University of Tokyo, Director of the Institute of China Studies at Seoul National University, and a host of very interesting academic work and credentials. Served also as a a consultant for the Intergovernmental Group of 24 at the United Nations Conference and Trade on Development. His work has appeared in numerous journals, received his Ph.D. from George Washington University and his B.A. from Seoul National University. Welcome to the conference, all of our participants. And I am virtual, you are all there. The last time I did this, I was in person and everybody was on a screen and I talked to an empty room full of a screen. So I made the wrong call again. someday I'll get the right memo and uh, we'll do this right. But uh, hey, what, what the heck, I'm in my living room with my Basset house, so life's good. All right, let's get into the, let's get into the conference here. Uh, really, really great uh, panelists, as I said, really great uh, subject. I'm gonna turn to Dr. Madero's first uh, to level set here. And just ask him a broad question: uh, Where things are heading in the U.S.-China relationship? Uh, we've got this really important virtual session tonight between the the, the two leaders, President Biden uh, Xi Jinping, and so topical as well. The impacts to the allies, impacts in the region. Dr. Maderos, broad strokes here to get us going. The floor is yours.
3: Well, Ambassador Lipper, thank you very much. I think you missed your calling. You you were, of course, a wonderful ambassador, but it sounds like you'd be an even better sports broadcaster. So (laughs) I I look forward to the sort of play-by-play approach to this panel. Uh, In terms of the US-China relationship, now is a great time to be looking at it, not simply because uh, Xi Jinping and uh, President Biden are going to meet for the first time as counterparts, but more broadly, because the relationship is fundamentally changing in its character. And I want to make two points today about what that means for the U.S.-ROK relationship. Point number one is in the broad arc of the U.S.-China relationship. So since normalization in 79, I think we're heading into a period that I consider to be a terra incognita. Uh, In other words, uh, we're entering into a period where strategic competition is expanding, it's intensifying, and it's diversifying. We're entering into a period in which the scope and the character of competition is really about to accelerate in significant ways. There is broad spectrum competition between the United States and China. In other words, we compete on security issues, on economic issues, on issues of technology, and even on issues of ideology. Now, of course, security competition and economic competition is not new, but it's broadening and intensifying. And unlike during the Cold War, these four areas of competition now bleed together. Security competition has economic dimensions. Economic competition has security manifestations. Questions of ideological competition are expressed in terms of global governance and technology. So in other words, all of these four issues are intertwined with one another, which makes it much more difficult to compartmentalize and ultimately manage them. But the fact that the relationship is becoming more competitive is part of the story. There's an additional part of it, which is both sides are now actively using risk and friction, they tolerate it, they use it in the relationship. Both sides are using much more confrontational strategies, they're tolerating confrontation, in the relationship more. And I think that that leads to not only a greater degree of differences, but also more volatility in the relationship. And I think we should expect that going forward. A final point I want to make about competition is the fact that the domestic politics behind it are changing in both sides. And I think that's only going to make the competitive dimensions of the relationship a greater challenge to manage. In fact, I think that we may be entering an era of the relationship in which domestic politics more than geopolitics, in other words, the relative position of each country in the international system, influences the US-China relationship. In the United States, you see a fairly rapid deterioration in public opinion. Unfavorability toward China is at an all-time high among both elites and the public. You have strong bipartisan support within the Congress for more active measures to support competitive strategies toward China. China has alienated key parts of of U.S. society, the business community, the media, certainly civil society after the implementation of the NGO law, and even uh, universities who have to think much more systematically about China risk and China exposure. So the domestic politics are changing in the United States. And similarly, the domestic politics of China's America policy are changing. Uh, Xi Jinping has centralized decision-making so much around him that it's unclear whether or not he and his advisors fully appreciate how they've alienated other countries with their aggressive and assertive policies. You see nationalism spiking in China. There's a strong sense of indignation in China. The domestic dimensions of China's competitive strategies are coming to the fore as reflected in things like the 14th five-year plan passed earlier this year in which the Chinese are starting to re-engineer the composition of their economy to take account of a much more complicated external geopolitical environment. So the domestic dimensions of the competition are changing in important ways that I think will complicate and narrow the ability of America and the ability of China to manage this terra incognita that I talked about. Second point, what does this mean for allies and partners? And sort of the way I think about it, is we've entered a new era in which what happens in the U.S.-China relationship no longer stays in the U.S.-China relationship. It's sort of the the opposite of the the Vegas rule, so to speak. And what I mean by that is as the competition intensifies, because China has such a global economic footprint, because it is uh, becoming more important, to the security and the politics of countries all over the world. China's present and influential in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, and and in Europe. So what that means is that as the US-China competition intensifies and manifests in those four baskets I talked about, that the pressures on other regions, other parts of the world where the US has strong allies and partners, the impact on them is going to be more acute. And so what I think about is that the trade-offs for allies and partners are going to be more frequent. The trade-offs are going to be on a broader set of issues. The trade-offs could also be more costly. And then the Chinese are actively sort of exploring the boundaries of those alliances and those partnerships to see what risks countries are willing to run, what costs they're willing to pay as the US-China relationship heats up. As a former policymaker, a question that I used to get all the time is, is America going to ask us to choose between the United States and China? I think that we should now reverse that question and ask countries, what are you gonna do when China asks you to choose between the United States and China? Because what I see is, as China has become more capable and more confident, that China is increasingly asking countries to choose. I would note in particular, as a closing point, an excellent piece of research that Professor Cha uh, did about a year ago where he looked at the binary choices that both Australia has faced and and South Korea has faced as the US-China competition has heated up. And so I, I think that's an excellent piece of research because it points to the diversity of decisions countries face whether it's speaking out on Hong Kong supporting the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank supporting the BRI and whether these choices are binary or not we could argue about but nonetheless there are going to be more of these pressure points countries are going to face and i think from an american perspective is if i was a policymaker i think the united states needs to think a little bit more systematically about which decisions Speak to the strategic alignment, strategic orientation of a country, right? You know, does South Korea's unwillingness to speak vocally about the crackdown on Hong Kong, does that really affect the US ROK alignment? Whereas its position on BRI and AIB, you know, and certainly on issues like North Korea, you know, may speak more to issues of alignment. Final point that I'll close on, Ambassador Lippert, is You know, in answering this question, how do countries avoid having to choose between the United States and China, and I think the way increasingly our allies and partners need to think about it is that in order to avoid having to choose, right, having to face that sort of dramatic decision of aligning with China or aligning with the United States, I think in order to avoid the grand strategic choice, countries are going to have to make some choices. In other words, have to think in advance before we get to a crisis. So in order to avoid having to choose, countries are going to have to think about making some choices you know, about things like 5G in order to avoid some grand strategic moment in the future. But nonetheless, my broader point is what happens in the US-China relationship no longer stays in the relationship. And I think that. That kind of trade offs that countries are going to face are going to be more frequent, they're going to be broader, and be more costly. Over to you, Ambassador Lippert.
1: All right, thanks, uh, Dr. Medeiros. Really uh, appreciate the outstanding intervention and the comments about being a sports commentator. Dare to dream, KBO sports uh, caster in my future. All right, let's go to Professor Son to follow up on Dr. Madero's comments that really set a set the stage. Well, for your expertise, Dr. Sun, you are a deep expert in China. Let's pull on one thread uh, that Dr. Medeiros mentioned. The objectives of Beijing in their relationship towards Seoul, uh, are they forcing the Koreans to choose? I think that's one. And then the other question is just general thoughts on where this relationship is between Seoul and Beijing. You heard the the Vice Foreign Minister uh, talk about a partnership, talk about a good working relationship. Professor, you're a deep expert in this area. The floor is yours.
4: Okay, first of all, thank you very much for your kind uh, introduction, uh, Ambassador. And uh, I extend my thanks to CISIS and the Korean Foundation for organizing a wonderful event. Let me start with your second question, uh, where are things in the bilateral relations. My takeaway uh, point is South Korea and China, they need to accept open-minded pessimism about bilateral relations in the near future. I think two countries have entered a new and more complicated stage in terms of three important uh, developments. First, uh, the dynamics I want to touch upon is the heightened sense of economic vulnerability and security. And that is, uh, you know, South Korea and US (coughs) find that some elements of uh, today's US-China trade competition may lead to some change in the global supply chain and global uh, value chain. So it is consequently in Beijing and Seoul, there's a growing sense of uncertainty about possible decoupling or partial coupling or complementary recoupling with Chinese economy. And on top of that, and uh, both Beijing Seoul are keenly aware of the risk of what is called economic interdependence, uh, weaponized interdependence, which means the, uh, manipulating abusing the uh, economic dependence to, to achieve a narrow-defined uh, self-interest. So these uh, new dynamics deepen a sense of the vulnerability and started to undermine market-driven trade, market-driven economic integration between two countries. My second point is about the decline of positive feelings in Sino-South Korean mutual perception. And on Chinese side, a lot of reports and news media suggest that the Chinese public's perception towards South Korea has worsened over the past decade. Likewise, uh, on the Korea, there's uh, uh, anti-China sentiments running high. is well reported. So these increasing negative trend and mutual perception will become a stumbling block to the uh, future bilateral relations. My third point is, uh, is about uh, the domestic politics, especially elite politics in two countries. And uh, the leadership in two countries have been preoccupied with domestic challenges and domestic issues. And uh, the, in, in China, uh, Chinese leaders are busy, you know, uh, pretty much obsessed, busy with the dealing with uh, domestic problems in a quite uh, repressed manner. And also, the things are, uh, appears to be uh, having geared toward the uh, President Xi Jinping's century, uh, uh, the consolidation of his power and the extension of his tenure as a permanent leader next year. On the Korean side, South Korea is politically polarizing and facing uh, daunting challenges such as housing bubble, economic inequality, uh, youth unemployment. And also, the, I noticed that the domestic issue as opposed to the foreign policy issue, domestic continue to dominate public debates in the run-up to the uh, present election next year. So, the, my point is the, the, the leadership in the two countries are not in a good position. To, uh, to afford time, energy, and uh, political capture to do some uh, proactive, creative measure to improve bilateral relations. So overall, now, the two countries may have to accept the uh, uh, open-minded pessimism about their relations. And I would say the overdose of optimism it can be uh, self-defeating. So rather, a rather uh, real, realistic view can be uh, helpful for maintaining stable relations to country. And I would say that nothing is permanent except change. Nothing is permanent except change. Which means South Korea, China went through uh, apps and flows up and down over the three, uh, past three decades. So uh, two countries uh, should remain patient, open mind to any change in the future. The question, first question about the, what China really wants, what's the objective uh, we, uh, we have to start thinking about what the, the Chinese understanding of the uh, US-China uh, competition. And uh, they see the one key al- nature elements of the US-China uh, street competition is regime competition, system competition. For Beijing, the primary concern is the uh, regime resilience, regime survival. So they, uh, Chinese leaders have uh, internal anxiety. And uh, to this, uh, China, China uh, leadership want to shape uh, its international environment in favor of uh, Chinese Communist Party staying in power. To this end, Chinese leaders maybe, probably, they, uh, they will try to prevent South Korea from the, uh, teaming up to contain or harm China. And also, uh, moreover, I think the Chinese leaders want to uh, neutralize or mitigate South Korea's cultural normative influence over Chinese people. K-pop, K-drama featuring liberal ideas like such as diversity, pluralism is dangerous. Uh, It's a a spiritual pollution. Uh, So so we have to understand Beijing's concern about its regime resilience in its approach to South Korea and other neighboring countries.
1: All right, thanks professor for really an outstanding uh, intervention. Uh, in and around the two questions that I posed to you that really built well on Dr. Medeiros's setup and, and overview. Let's go next to Professor Ma and speaking from your experience, Professor, Director General Policy Planning, talk about the dynamics that these two previous panelists you heard. Dr. Medeiros talked about choices, you talked about structural deterioration in the relationship, uh, we heard about Professor Ma talking about open-minded pessimism, preoccupation with domestic concerns, public opinion sliding uh, in both countries, weaponization of the economics. So lots of complications in the environment in which policymakers in Seoul find themselves in the midst of this relationship. So what is the impact on ROK policymaking, especially towards U.S.-ROK alliance and on issues concerning Beijing? The floor is yours. All right, thank you
5: very much for having me here. During the past 10 years, I think, there has been an increasing number of cases where Korea faces a very difficult, you know, situations to make policy decision among the conflicting pressures from, on the one hand, from Washington, and the other hand, from Beijing. The current government, I think, under the previous and current administration has sought quite uh, consistently a sort of balanced diplomacy. This is not an equal distance policy, however. Korea does not aim to place itself at the right center, the right geometric center uh, between the United States and, and, and China. To be honest, Korea is tilted more toward United States while it tries to avoid somehow irritating or provoking China, especially with regard to the issues of sovereignty and Territorial claims that China I think very cons- uh, sensitive. Korean government officials, including Vice Minister Che, repeatedly express this position uh, by saying and emphasizing that the United States is Korea's only ally and China is the largest economic and trading partner. Despite China's rapid rise in the recent decades, and some academic observations that uh, these are taking place kind of a power shift or hegemonic shift from the United States toward China. Uh, I I think most of the Korean officials, uh, policymakers, doesn't want to see really uh, the power shift happening. Yet, Korea tries to avoid kind of friction with China for two well-known reasons. First, uh, China is the Korea's largest economic and trading partner. Our trade volumes, the portions of uh, you know, trade with China uh, occupies about 25% of our total uh, trading volumes. And in addition, Korea imports a number of items, uh, very essential for our economy, from China. So that, that kind of independence on the trade with China makes us very difficult to somehow uh, taking a position to provoke China. Secondly, the current Korean government seeks China's active uh, cooperation To jumpstart the Korean peace process. Uh, President Moon Jae-in proposed the end of the war declaration among the three parties or four parties and want to utilize the upcoming uh, Beijing Winter Olympic Games as a kind of a diplomatic opportunity. On the other hand, uh, I'd like to also add that Korea seeks cooperation with the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, especially in terms of Korea's own uh, new southern policy. The cooperation is more focused on economic area and social areas too. The Korea is somehow cautious on defense cooperation, however, especially in a wider region beyond the Korean Peninsula. Uh, South Korea seeks to enhance its own uh, defense capacity, however, in close consultation with the United States. It is noteworthy, I think, uh, in, in a recent Uh, report that uh, the KIKR, which is a a think tank associated with the Chinese intelligence agency, uh, warned recently that uh, South Korea's enhanced uh, defense capabilities in areas like missiles and uh, submarines would play disadvantageously for China in its uh, strategic competition with the United States. I think this testifies how Korean policy and positions is somehow navigating uh, narrow waters between uh rocks and hotter
1: place thank you all right thank you professor really excellent insights can i just follow up on one point just draw you out just a little bit more it was on your last point that you made about the wider regional i guess cooperation engagement by seoul uh, in the indo-pacific how about values there's been a lot of talk on democracy, human rights, rule of law. You have Taiwan reference in the joint statement that accompanied the summit between the two leaders uh, just uh, this spring. There's been obviously an ongoing conversation for many years between the United States and South Korea on the South China Sea. You touched on that a little bit, but any further comments on that basket of issues?
5: Well. On those issues which might relate to the values or value diplomacy, I think the Korean government has been a little bit less concerned with those issues, the causes of uh, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. This is partly because of the concern that we have uh, not irritating uh, China too much. Probably we we may have uh, opportunities to discuss later in this round of uh, discussion, I think, Korea, I think, needs uh, to take a more principled approach or position, reflecting its own identity as a liberal democracy or, or as a, a trading uh, nation well, that uh, Vice Minister Chet touched upon in his uh, uh, previous uh, uh, addresses. Well, Korea's own political and economic uh, development owes greatly to the existence of the liberal international order. Uh, and uh, that testifies that uh, Korea needs and has an interest, a very significant interest, to preserve that kind of international order. For that, freedom of navigation in the South, South China Sea and uh, free trade regimes in the world and human rights, democracy, I think those
1: are all issues that really matters for Korean interests. Well put. Thanks, Professor. Uh, excellent uh, comeback there and appreciate the comments especially about the rules-based international order and its nexus uh, to the uh, the trading nation status of the republic of korea or the trade the emphasis that the republic of korea places on being a trading nation let's come to professor kim and let's bring this back to the peninsula it dovetails a bit with the Q&A session uh, with the vice foreign minister where we had a a lot of conversation about China, but the vice minister kept bringing this back into the peninsular context and the North Korea relationship uh, as well as kind of a driver. So let's, and the reason we bring this back is because of your expertise on North Korea, but the impact of all of this on DPRK itself, machinations in Pyongyang, and Seoul's DPRK policy and as well as the alliance posture towards DPRK policy, especially given the competition of two key members, US and China, that hold seats at the Security Council and are essential for virtually any multilateral configuration on the DPRK issue, four-party, six-party, etc. Professor, comments on this basket of issues and the floor is yours.
6: Okay, thank you very much. I'm honored to be one of this a wonderful panel, and especially Ambassador Rippert. As I If I remember correctly, you are the Tucson supporters, right? They are losing now, so I hope to win over happy. I'm it. not happy. Not, I'm not not too, com- too, they're down 2
1: nothing. you know. <laughs> okay.
6: Korean series is going, but anyways, <laughs> yes. I'm relieved like a few months ago from a government official job, so, so I'm enjoying a civilian life afterwards yeah it's, it's really strategic questions for Korean survivor and Korean both you know, both north and south. let me start with uh, introducing my episode when I met North Korean foreign minister people back in March 2018. The time is very uh, delicate at the time because you know it's after announcement of inter-Korean summit and U.S.-North Korean summit decided. Somehow this is trilateral 1.5 strategic dialogue in Helsinki, Finland. After three days, and we talked a lot and as informally, and I asked so many questions that I, you know, have in in a in in long time, and I asked him, "What do you think about China? China is your plan A to be to survive in the coming if your regime has." difficulties he said definitely he said no our plan a is u.s the plan b is china we want to have a good relations with the u.s because they have something it deeply related to our survival but if you push this too much to the corner then we have no choice but to hang on china and he challenged me by asking that whenever china gets stronger in history they always have hard time give gave hard time Koreans to Koreans i think it's very frank and honest statement and in, in several very episode i heard with you know from kissinger and kim gewan's dialog in new york channel and they want to have even want to have some kind of alliance uh, relations with with the us i don't think it's just you know just kidding or, or joke the reason why i say is I think it's right now we are at juncture. I think and the US-China relationship, someone, someone call this strategic paranoia. I know China behaves sometimes, you know, bad, violator, there's still technology, but somehow this uh, strategic competition out of hands and that means, you know, it's very difficult to Koreans, both Koreans. You know, because we never solved, resolved this division of a peninsula. We couldn't be successful, uh, you know, when the Cold War collapsed. Chinese people, they said, it's, it's a long war. So even 50 years or 100 years. But they can endure, they said. They will win, but they can endure. But physically, geopolitically, you know, this East Asia is the battlefield. I don't think they're kind of going to well, at, at war, but somehow they weren't, so they tested each other. So this fort line from Korean Peninsula and East China Sea and Taiwan Strait and South China Sea. I think China, you know, Taiwan Strait is most dangerous spot, but if somebody, you know, doing like a military clash, that's the end of it. So I don't think it's really useful in my opinion, but Korean opinion is, 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 is the one that U.S. and China can take advantage of to warn or to test the other side. So that's really a worry. And another one is, in a way, Korean government, especially progressive government, is trying to balance. You know, this divisive frame is going on now. It always was there. Pro-China, pro-North, progressive, same category. Pro-U.S., anti-China, anti-North Korea, always on the same side. And it's still going on. But somehow, progressive government, like a moon government, try to balance. Even if you know, they're criticized by the pro-China, I know that it's going on a very deep conversation, dialogue between uh, Beijing and Seoul. Even, you know, everybody is talking about this domestic cost of foreign policy is rising. But somehow they try to maintain be rational, even in election time. And even after third sanction by China, everybody, you know, more than 80% are anti-China feelings. But still, and many people just send the same questions. How can we choose China over US? So why don't we choose now? you know, U.S. over China, this is it's almost consensus among people, but that's not easy. You know, 30% dependence on trade, yeah, decoupling is necessary. We tried to decouple, you know, China, with the Chinese economy since the third incident. Some success cases, but still going back to, actually went back to like almost 30% again. It's going to take time. It needs very careful approach. So it's not easy for us to, yeah, definitely. I don't think it's really strategic ambiguity. Our government is trying to hold on. It's not pure balance, we all know that. Fundamental basis, of course, U.S.-ROK alliance, but we don't want to damage, critically damage, Korea-China relationship. So let me conclude my uh, comment. So we have a choice? People say, are you you plan A, what's South Korea's car? (laughs) Plan A, plan A of of course US. Then plan B is China? No, no way. Our plan B is is actually the US and multilateralism. So definitely alliance is our number one policy, but it has to be supplemented by multilateralism. But these days, multilateralism inside the one block, in a block situation is not very good idea. Now quote, uh, Indo-Pacific, and Five Eyes, we have good working relationship. But the joining as a member is a different story. And one more thing is we try to build some kind of crossover multilateral kind of uh, uh, organization or institutions with EU, uh, with ASEAN, the so-called we call the third uh, region third zone. I'll stop here. Thank you very much.
1: Professor, outstanding intervention, and you really covered the landscape on the themes of the ROK in terms of uh, strategic competition between the U.S. and China. Just let me follow up and, and ask, uh, re-ask the question that I put in, in the original question to you. Uh, just a little bit, if you don't mind, just a couple minutes on North Korea. Uh, we've I just wanted to factor that in. You touched on it a little bit, but obviously it looms large in South Korean policymaking. China has a Security Council seat. There's elements in the the multilateral conversations if they ever get going again with North Korea. How does that play into these thoughts you had in terms of leverage the Chinese may have politically on the South Koreans or impact on South Korean policymaking? Your thoughts there quickly, and then we'll go to uh, Mr. Shriver.
6: I think, you know, original goal is to try to, uh, you know, Make this uh, multilateralism uh, more on the on the policy agenda, but somehow, because of the all mesmerized by this North Korean issue, like early beginning year of his uh, policy, and this southern policy and northern policy, and another ish, you know obstacle was the pandemic. So I don't think he really uh, uh, materialized as he intended to do that, but. Uh, Bottom line is like that and he always have to defend himself. He's not really, you know Destabilizer of the alliance he tries so hard, you know tell people in Korea and the u.s He's not the type
1: that many, you know conservative framed Okay, thank you. Excellent. All right, mr. Shriver. You've been waiting a little a little while we appreciate the patience but uh, You know, you're the cleanup hitter. You're the Kim Jae-hwan of the conference. That's Doosan's cleanup hitter. So stick with the baseball analogy here. Um, You heard some uh, very uh, interesting comments along the way about decoupling the domestic issues in South Korea, that it's not equidistant in terms of uh, a hedge between between the United States and China that the Koreans are running. The multilateral piece, southern strategy, this comes right into your wheelhouse, uh, especially as former assistant secretary of defense at DOD, where you had a regional lens and were charged with a lot of alliance management among other duties. But talk about these dynamics in terms of the impact in Korea, alliances more generally, and then thoughts about how the United States might play into these trends in a way that brings allies and partners closer to us Versus further away. Uh, Mr. Shriver, and any other comments you might want to make too on the uh, preceding interventions, uh, because uh, that's the uh, dis- distinction you have as the cleanup hitter. You can hit any pitch you want, and I'll stop there.
2: Great. Well, thanks, Ambassador Lippert. Uh, appreciate you moderating this panel, and thank you to CSIS and the Korea Foundation, and for my colleagues uh, who's, uh, who've already made excellent comments. Look, I think for the United States and the region, we've been on a trajectory for a longer period than some people acknowledge or maybe even understand. Uh, I actually think, and I've said this many times, the Trump administration was more evolutionary than revolutionary, and that in fact, the the basic foundation for our move into the Pacific where we uh, prioritized alliances, where we thought about posture, where we thought about competition with China, all of that really began during the pivot or the rebalance that uh, Mark, you were so critical, in uh, helping conceive of and develop, and Evan as well, and and really, you know, if you look at, I don't have to tell you guys because you guys came up with it, but 60% of our naval forces in the in the strategic guidance that the Obama administration put out in the Pacific, the, the prioritization and modernization of alliances, and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, all of this was laid in the in the Obama administration, and then I think further during the Trump administration, and now I think we see a lot of continuity in the Biden administration. I make this point because even though certainly President Trump had a a, a difference in style and personality and tone. I think we've been on this trajectory of adopting a more competitive posture vis-a-vis China for quite some time. And it was really driven by interest, by China's behavior and their really aspirations to undermine the free and open order that we've all benefited so much from. So this gets to your question about alliance management. I think our alliance discussions have also evolved and matured along the way, where particularly behind closed doors, we're we're able to have very frank and candid discussions about where we see the future challenges and what our expectations may be of our respective alliances and respective uh, minilateral, multilateral organizations. So I think this has been a, a fairly smooth evolutionary process up until recently, where I think the competition is intensifying. And so when we talk about choices Sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable even with the, you know, the titles of sessions like this, whether or not to choose or hedge or, or choose. Well, for goodness sake, hopefully we've made a choice of some kind that we're allies and we share values and there's a sort of a foundational view of what's important. But when, when we would go around the region, we found a lot of receptivity not to choosing Washington over Beijing, but can you choose protection of your sovereignty? Can you choose free, fair, reciprocal trade? Can you choose peaceful dispute resolution? Can you choose international norms and, and standards? Can you choose a particular approach to a, a regional order, which is characterized by the free and open qualities? Now, obviously, I'm not, no spoiler alert here, if you can choose all those things, we're pretty confident you'll be in our camp. But the choices are going to become more stark and pointed, and people will be, I think, further exposed, if you will. Uh, I, I've never thought that people didn't want to choose. And people don't generally want to choose in public. And they don't generally want to choose in a way that appears confrontational to China because we all have a lot of stake in the, in the China relationship. Um, but in terms of choosing those values, those norms, those standards, I've always felt very comfortable that we've got momentum. We've got coalition of countries that far outweigh uh, countries that want a different kind of regional order or a different kind of deferential relationship with China. So I, I, I'm pretty confident about it. And I'm bullish on the USROK relationship and and alliance going into the future. Uh, But there are some risks. Look, the the, uh, Biden administration is is attempting to pull something off that's that's very difficult. We're going to learn a little more maybe tonight after the phone call, although I've I've seen a a very aggressive ploy at at dampening expectations, which is always, you know, I had pretty low expectations going in already, but we've been assured there will be no deliverables and we shouldn't have high expectations for this first meeting. Uh, But really what I think they're trying to do is achieve a new sort of steady state. They talk about common sense guardrails. They talk about trying to insulate certain areas of cooperation. Certainly we've seen Mr. Kerry's efforts related to climate change. I think we'll hear more about some of the other efforts, maybe even something related to the the Korean Peninsula. Try to achieve a new normal but but a steady state where competition is the defining quality of the relationship but we do have these so-called common sense guardrails and we have these insulated and protected areas of cooperation. I don't think it's gonna work. And I don't think it's gonna work because uh, a point that Evan made, which I thought was an excellent point, uh, the Chinese are willing to accept more friction. They're using coercion and military tools in order to try to drive outcomes. That will make it very difficult to to have a steady state that is not very dangerous and, and risky. I think it will also fail for a number of, of other reasons, and it relates to you know, values and, and interests. Um, there are certain things that are just going to be hard to ignore. We can, we can go and have a normal Olympics, but it's pretty hard to ignore ongoing genocide, which is happening in Xinjiang right now. Two administrations in a row have acknowledged that. Nor should we ignore genocide. This should be factored into our relationship. And when our Chinese counterparts say they want a relationship based on mutual respect, they want a relationship uh, characterized by win-win cooperation, uh, what they really mean is they want us to refrain from any criticism whatsoever of their actions, particularly what they deem internal policy matters, uh, and that we avoid irritants. And, And this will be very, very tricky to navigate. So going forward, and let me speak specifically about the U.S. ROK alliance, I think there's really sort of two risks. And, and let me chapeau this again by saying I am bullish on this and I think we'll we'll manage this all effectively and, and, and we'll come out the other side stronger, but but really two risks. And I they've, they've sort of been addressed in, in one form or another so far. But, but one is that we have a near-term crisis that we're not prepared for as an alliance. And I think certainly something could happen in the Taiwan Strait. I, I'm not of the view that China's uh, anxious for a fight and that they're planning a near-term invasion, but certainly the level of uh, flight activity, surface activity in and around Taiwan raises the risk for all of us of an unintended incident or crisis that escalates. What ha- Have our friends in Seoul thought through what that means for them? Have we thought through what that means for an alliance? I suspect not... Thoroughly enough, because it, sometimes uh, we, we respect these topics as taboo topics and we don't go deep enough. But I, I can't think of anything worse for the Alliance than a crisis of that nature that we're unprepared for, caught off guard for. Uh, so I think whatever needs to be done behind closed doors, whether that's our rock allies having conversations among themselves and gaming through what a crisis like that might mean, or even, I think, more appropriately and valuable would be a, an Alliance discussion about, uh, certain hotspots and what it would mean for the alliance should there be a crisis of that nature. The second risk is is really uh, more difficult and, and long-term in nature, and that is that this divergence that we may have on views of China and the regional order and how much deference to show to China in in uh, favor of, of maintaining normal trade relations, uh, that that divergence will cause a drift that over time we'll find ourselves 10, 15, 20 years from now with a a diminished alliance. Not that the affinity would be gone, not that the history always remains and that uh, we would have many shared interests, But look, China is the organizing principle for the Department of Defense right now, as defined by the previous national defense strategy, and that's been endorsed by the new administration. You can't have an alliance where one side views something as the primary important challenge, the organizing principle, and the other side doesn't embrace that without some loss of relevance over time. And uh, if that's the drift we're on, that's also uh, equally uh, dangerous in a way because again we'll be sort of diminished and, and less relevant over time. Uh, and that's not where we want to be. So we need to be vigilant about evolving. I like the uh it was interesting the, the the first vice minister's comments. He gave a speech and didn't mention China, but he talked a lot about evolving and adapting and and doing what we need to do to keep relevance. So I think that's uh that's really the challenge that I took away from that speech. And and we have to have Uh, the China challenge as a part of that discussion. There certainly will be perturbations along the way, but Korea does not want to be France in the AUKUS equation, right? France was treated the way they were treated mostly because they frankly were overlooked and that key decision makers didn't give full, proper consideration for their role in the Pacific, their partnership with us, uh, we don't want to find ourselves at a point where we're making decisions about our, our strategic competition with China that sort of overlooks or forgets the importance of, of Korea, and, and that could come in a number of forms. And by the way, there are some near-term risks there, too. Uh, I hope if the administration is seriously considering uh, a no-first-use declaration, which I think would be a horrible idea, uh, I hope we think about fully what that means for extended deterrence and what we what that means for our alliance with the ROK and others. But the point is, we don't want to sort of slide into a diminished state uh, because of this divergence. And and we need to address it head on earlier
1: so that we don't sort of wake up 10, 15 years later with with a less relevant alliance. Okay, Randy, thanks. Uh, Really uh, outstanding intervention. Let me just come back for for a one-minute follow-up because we're basically out of time. But your thoughts on going forward, given some of the risks you outlined, number one. Number two, I think what I would characterize is some of the structural friction that you think will lead to at least a a look at a different approach in the near future. Uh, And then this danger of being, I guess you'd sort of say overlooked, uh, those three issues. Um, And I would just for the record point out that in just a few years back, uh, the Koreans, we're seeking cooperation on nuclear submarines, right? The AUKUS piece, there's an interesting uh, lens there. Yep. Randy, thoughts on how we manage this? Tiny question in about a minute. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, again, I, I agree with a point Evan made, and I don't mean to, to make you feel uncomfortable, a Trump appointee agreeing so much with you, Evan. Um, but uh, he talked about finding the, the areas of cooperation that really have more significant, strategic significance rather than maybe some of the other areas. And I do think, um, as uncomfortable as it is for all of us, we are not going to be able to maintain normal sort of status quo trade and economic relations with China going forward. We're not. And I think where it's coming to a head first is on technology. And I think the combination of, of China's aggressive efforts to steal it, pirate it, but also the program of military-civil fusion in that seemingly commercial activities are really benefiting, uh, ultimately benefiting the PLA uh, through the civil-military fusion uh, efforts. Uh, That means we've got to tighten up. So it's supply chain for our own protection, so there's diversification there. So we have reliable supplies of critical technologies, but more and more it's about protection, protection of technologies. It's about identifying the choke points that are important to China so that we understand where we have leverage um, but this is not going to be a normal trade relationship going forward. In the U.S., we're going to start to look at capital flows, which is sort of the untouched 800-pound gorilla. Uh, we've put these tariffs in place. We've talked about entities lists. Uh, but still, the, the capital is flowing to China at unprecedented levels. That's not going to continue. And so for us to have, I think, a, an approach to the overall China challenge that, that is really optimal, we got to
1: start talking about these hard economic questions first. All right. Thanks, Randy. We're about to gavel down. Evan, you were brought into this. One minute to you to respond. Closing thoughts, then we're going to gavel and get on with the, uh, the rest of the show.
3: So I will foot stomp Randy's point, which is uh, one of in order for the alliance to continue, we really have to stay aligned on the China challenge. When first Vice Minister Choi was giving his speech, he said, let's talk about the 800-pound elephant in the room. And I thought he was about to say China, and I was like, great, they get it. And of course, he talked about uh, Korea. So I think all of the risks that Randy highlighted are really spot on. I hope the U.S. and the ROK at a government-to-government level have a very special quiet, non-public channel for beginning to coordinate uh, perceptions, assessments, strategies and policies on China. That's what's needed. Because whether it's through the channel of a crisis or drift, I think that there are uh, real serious risks that need to be uh, attended to. Because as other commentators have pointed to, the Chinese strategy is one of either neutralizing or Finlandizing South Korea. That's what they want, diminish the role of the alliance gradually, incrementally over time. And while it's it's easy for all of us here that are very focused on the U.S. ROK alliance and have a lot of experience, I think it's the policymakers at the top of both our systems that don't focus on U.S. ROK 24-7 that need to be sort of brought into that. And I think that that's going to be an exceptionally important agenda in the future. Thank you.
1: All right, thanks, Evan. With that, we are going to gavel down session one, an outstanding session. Professor Medeiros, Professor Son, Professor Ma, Professor Kim, the Honorable Randy Shriver, uh, thank you all for really outstanding comments, insights, counsel, really, really, really a fast paced tour de force here. In closing, I'll just say the takeaways that I had among others, complex, evolving, involves domestic alliance uh, issues, it's broader, in the international context in terms of its impact. It's not equidistant. Uh, the distance Seoul is trying to cover between Washington and Beijing, but there, where we are between 100% agreement in Washington and Seoul and being equidistant is still to be determined. And then finally, values, economics, multilateralism, even cultural, the K-pop uh, reference Uh, by one of the panelists as well, all in play here. So great session. Thanks again, really set us up well for the the next uh, events here in the conference and really a fantastic food for thought for all policymakers, academics, and think tank experts around the world. Thanks again.
0: If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate@csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there, too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.